Hey everybody, this is Alex. Hey, it's Natasha. And we are here to talk just for a second about Extra Crunch TechCrunch's subscription product. Extra Crunch is where a lot of our best analysis and follow-up stories lives. We focus a lot on startups, building, and even poke fun here and there. It's true. I also write a daily column called The Exchange that's over on Extra Crunch. And the good news is, if you don't have EC access yet, we have a deal for you. Yes, you can use, I think, the best code there is. So don't tell anyone who doesn't listen to Equity because they're not invited. The code is equity, all caps, for 50% off your Extra Crunch subscription. So head over to techcrunch.com slash subscribe. Use that code. Make us look good internally. We say thanks across the internet. And now let's do a show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex and I am joined, as always, by two of my absolute favorites. I have Danny Crying with me. Danny, how are you and how much caffeine have you had today? I have had a lot of creme gray tea. I had an amazing samosa platter from a food truck, uh, an Indian food truck down the street. So I am doing really swell this morning. I've never heard someone say Indian food in response to a caffeine question, but here we are. <laughs> we also have Natasha Mascarenas. Natasha, how are you? And also the caffeine question, please let people know how you're doing. I'm good. The week is finally ending. So that's always fun. But I got a great order of Dunkin' for free with all my points today. Yeah. So that's my flex. <laughs> I'm, I'm super jealous about you that. You know, Boston runs on Dunkin', so. If only I was in Boston. I yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> New Jersey runs on corruption. All right. Uh, <laughs> this, this week coming up, we have notes about a very interesting hacker house. There are a plethora of funding rounds to talk about. We dig into AI. Danny talks about protein folding, which is interesting. And also we're going to talk about some cool M&A packed episode, guys. Let's go. Yeah, I think this is my most optimistic story I've written this year. So a group of 20 undergrads across the country who are women in CS, studying CS, have formed their own hacker house of sorts to take gap semesters and just work with each other for nine weeks. Over 500 people applied and, and 20 people were chosen and where maybe before they were, they were dropping out. Yeah. And if I'm not totally mistaken, uh, 500 applicants, 20 chosen, that's a 4% admit rate. Is that right? Totally. There was also a really healthy showing of diversity, which I think is something that is lacking in hacker houses. The piece I wrote a couple months ago just talked about how most of them skewed white and male. And so this one was, I think, one of the only female-focused our female-only hacker houses out there. The last detail I want to give and the real reason why I was, you know, my ears perked up when I first talked to the co-founders was that all the participants have signed this contract where they plan to dedicate 1% of their annual income for the next five years into a syndicate fund. And I was like, well, when I was 20 years old, I was not thinking about those things. And no matter how big that fund gets, fine. But I, was, yeah. I have to give snaps to them for just being investors, angel investors at this age. That reminds me of the 1% pledge, but it's not an altruistic pledge. It's more of a group build a little fun pledge. I think that's that's brilliant. Although I will say 20, 20 kids, college, income, 1%. It, it, it niches down to a small dollar amount. But at the same time, that doesn't mean you won't learn a lot, get a lot of access to companies uh, and, and maybe pick up a cool job or whatever it is. So I think it's overall pretty great. Yeah, I mean, I, I covered a startup doing this earlier this year whose name I can't remember uh, on the spot. But I, I think one of the interesting things is how much this just marinates the community, right? The goal is to make sure that people helping, you know, intro 
their friends, to their investors, to make the connections, to create the glue that holds those communities together. Look, it, it is a financial incentive to do that. Obviously, the friendships and the actual relationships are the core of that, but it helps to incentive align. The other thing I liked about this program was they do charge a $5,000 entrance fee. Apparently, they actually have scholarships covering for half the participants in the program from, quote, unnamed investors. So I, I kind of like this model of we've seen it occasionally where it's like, look, you can charge for something, but then there are other people who might actually subsidize it for some of those users. And so I think that that's like a nice mix as well. And I just want to say like this sort of stuff we cover, not because it has a big financial impact or whatever, but it, it does make me happy. Like I love seeing young people do cool things and take advantage of the situation and, and, and excel. And so this is just another example of that. And I wish that when I was their age, I had half the drive and seriousness, for lack of a better phrase, because I'm very impressed by them. Totally. And then speaking of people we're impressed by, I did get to talk to doctors this week, which I don't get to do often in a way that has to do with work. <laughs> so Sketchy <laughs> is a startup that helps soon to be doctors learn difficult concepts in medicine through videos. And this was a conversation that we've been having in that, okay, we don't need videos to learn, but Sketchy Tech's a really interesting way of doing it by doing like these live illustrations through a technique called Memory Palace. And I'll be really quick, but the, if, if you had to imagine how this works, think learning about salmonella through this scene where two chickens are eating a undercooked salmon dinner. And the idea is that you close your eyes during an exam and kind of walk through the scene and can elicit those concepts. And over 30,000 med students are actively subscribed to the platform right now. I think this is one of my favorite companies of the week, not only because the name is is hilarious. Uh, I, I mean, it's sketchy. We'll talk about that. And, and, and you know, it, it comes from these visualizations. I mean, it, it, the idea is like, look, you know, in the old world, for medical students, you're memorizing thousands and thousands of facts. You have to pass step one, two, and three on the medical licensing exam. You just have to memorize this huge database of information. And humans are not great at just taking an Excel table and dumping it into our brains. And so I, I, what I love about this is like it's taking that massive trove of information and simplifying it into visualizations, into, I mean, you call it memory palaces. You know, it, it's creating these uh, places where you can say, look, okay, I need to memorize 30 related facts. They can be in a room. Right. They can be, you know, utensils on the table. You, they can be the plate. And when you're in that room, when you're like, what's the fifth protein after the ninth protein, you can actually walk through that, quote, memory palace and remember exactly the order of these, you know, particular terms that you need to know. And so to me, what's amazing is, one, it's a long-time story. They were founded in 2013 by two medical students who were struggling with microbiology, a subject that I also struggled with for exactly the same reason. <laughs> did it. Um, and, and what's nuts is, you know, it's sort of a bootstrap story. It's, it, you know, it kind of grew up over time. But then they just got a massive round, uh, I guess, uh, last month. Yeah, they raised $30 million by TCG. And then the more recent news was that $3 million of those shares were sold to Reach Capital, which is an edtech-focused fund. So you see them taking money after so long. And I, I kept trying to ask them, why is it this usual COVID bump that all ad tech companies are getting? And they said, no, like, honestly, we haven't had an insane growth since coronavirus started because it's not like that need has been validated by COVID. Med students have always kind of had to um, have better study methods. And, and the, the exciting part of this company is that it's trying to replace the need for textbooks, for pages and pages of textbooks. And I think that's what EdTech needs more than another masterclass for X is like startup that will help you not need to buy another textbook and actually retain stuff. And they're expanding into nursing, um, legal fields. I think we'll see a lot from them. No, no, I, th I think it's really exciting. My, my partner is in medicine. And so I, I've been next to someone who's been studying for some of these tests. And it looked pretty grim. It looked like a lot of time sitting at a table, reading books or PDFs, and that just 
has got to be soul sucking when you're on day 69 or 68 or whatever, just getting through, but getting ready for one of these tests. So when I read this story before it went out, Natasha, I was instantly like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And then I kept reading through it and I saw 30,000 people using it, one third of med students. And I was like, oh, I'm just wrong. I'm just completely incorrect. This is actually super useful because Memory Palaces to me is a plot device from the Sherlock Holmes show. So I was like, that's dumb. Like Sherlock does Memory Palace stuff. And he's like, oh, where's the fact? But apparently it works. So you know what uh, points to them? I, I think it's also a sign of like, look, you know, medical students are obviously a very remuneratively high category of workers, right? People go to medical school. It's, it, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you go to a top medical school, it's probably upwards of a half million when you include all the fees, all the costs, everything going into that education, the applications, which are tens of thousands of dollars with travel to all the interviews. And so, so to my mind, it's like a high profit student, one that absolutely has to pass these tests. You can't fail. Tens of thousands of people have to every year go and take these tests. Why don't we have better technology besides a PDF with a bunch of text on it? 100%. And on the note of cost, yeah, my best friend is going through med school right now. And I consistently get those texts of like, I am feeling this in my soul, how much this costs to look at sketchy for going forward is their strategy with working directly with medical schools. Right now, 20% of their revenue comes from B2B. I would love to see that percent grow because it means that med students aren't going to have to pay out of pocket for it. Because right now the majority still do, which again is like, you have to have the ability to pay for a better study technique. And it's a headache, but yeah, a lot, a lot to come from them, especially with 30 million in venture capital. Yeah, that round to me speaks of a company that's doing well. You don't go no raise, no raise, no raise, 30 if you're not growing really quickly, uh, which actually brings me to the next company I wanted to talk about, which was AgentSync, a company that I didn't think I was going to hear from until next year. They raised around, I think it was this August. And so I was, you know, I kind of like, I, I talked to them, figured out what they were doing, wrote about it, and then put them in the back file because, you know, startups tend to raise every, you know, 12 to 24 months, depending on how fast they're growing, not like five. Anyways, they are back with a new larger round, this time 6.7 million, led by David Sachs Craft Ventures. Operator Collective took part in this. Here's what really caught my eye. They're growing like a weed. They grew essentially 4X since March and roughly 10X over the last year. Now, admittedly, as Danny will tell you, small base makes you know percentage gains easier. But at the same time, that's still impressive for any company that had just put together a $4.4 million round a couple of months ago. So a lot of interest here. And in the broader insurtech space, I know, Natasha, insurtech really isn't your jam, but like I love seeing these quick kind of rapid fire early stage rounds that kind of come sequentially after another. Um, it's, it's exciting to me. Well, I think we should talk about what AgentSync does. So AgentSync is an agent compliance management tool. Insurance is one of the most licensed and regulated categories you can work in. If you sell insurance, you have to be licensed for every product that you offer. If you remember, Zenefits had this massive scandal years ago because they were automating licensing exams online through a browser plugin that led to a huge controversy. You can't do that. It's actually a serious offense. You know, AgentSync is designed to sort of plug in here to make sure that your agents for any of these insure tech companies or traditional insurance companies are able to know that everyone who's selling a product is licensed for that product and you avoid the compliance concerns from your state insurance commissioner. And the other detail, Alex, that I liked from the piece on AgentSync is that they didn't have an enterprise sales experience until now. And so I think that the growth and potential sales coming up will be cool to see. And I think it, it validates even more the product market fit it's, it's gotten during this time. For sure. I think they said they were at 1.9 million ARR in August. And so they're probably at like four, three and a half now, somewhere in there. So growing nicely, they have over 10 million in the bank. So they have tons of capital to grow and they are hiring a sales team. They are fleshing out the business, using that capital to bring hires into this year. 
And so I think it's pretty exciting. And it reminds me a little bit of a different company we're not going to touch on much, but Welcome, another company that I covered that raised around a couple of months ago, also back at the well this week, also raising another round. There seems to be even more preemption of rounds than usual by VCs. I think any company that's showing growth is going to get a large check at least offered to it, if not crammed down its throat. So that's my impression of what's going on here. But Agent Sync is cool. And we can move on to to Pave. Is it, is it Pave? Pa- pa- Pave? <laughs> Look, Pave? Can you imagine? I, I'm going to call it Pave, which was formerly Trove, to be clear. This is one of those stories that just bugs the, the crap out of me, right? There, there, there's always these moments when you get like, you know, one of these markets, you're like, okay, our software, or earlier this year, we had org chart software. Yes. And you're like, how could any company be built here? And then there's like multiple companies funded from the, you know, top investors in the space in the same week. You know, in org charts, I think it was the org and something else, which tells you which one might win because I don't remember the other one. This week, it was PAVE and Welcome are in the same category of equity compensation software and specifically focus on startups. So startups give, unlike major corporations where it tends to be just be salary, a bonus that's usually a fixed percentage of your salary and, and maybe some sort of equity component, um, startups have a lot of range, right? And those compensation numbers change dramatically over time from C to Series A to Series B. There's oftentimes a lot of inequality that comes into these discussions, sometimes from early employees versus late employees, sometimes racial or gender inequality that comes from just the initial ne- negotiation when someone is onboarded. And so PAVE, and obviously Welcome as well, are trying to make this system more equal for all people and also sort of standardize and just make it easier for CEOs and HR professionals to actually just name a price for workers based on what they're they're offering. Anything that can bring more transparency to how workers can think about their equity comp is going to be great. I think we all have friends that work at startups and we all have talked to them about their comp packages. And usually it's like, we know their base and maybe any other cash comp. And then the equity is this hilarious black box. They don't know how many shares are outstanding. They don't really know the difference between a 409A valuation and strike price, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So bringing transparency will not only help people get on the ladder to wealth building if they work for a company that becomes quite valuable, but I think it just makes the world a bit more fair. And so, yes, we can, we can quibble that there are so many companies working on this problem, but it is a problem. And so it'll be curious to see uh, if they survive. My, my note to add is that this is the follow-up piece from that YC piece I wrote in August where we first heard about Trove. They had not presented at Demo Day, but had raised the 16 million round. And so they had raised it before August and are just now coming to a rebrand after only starting uh, in October. And so honestly, not too long of a company, very short time to be raising 16 million. But I am seeing Andreessen Horowitz put a lot of bets in like this network of, of companies that are all very much integrated with each other, which makes sense. Pave is integrated with Deal, which we've written about, a payroll tool. And then Pave and Deal are integrated with Carta, which Carta- Is also an Andreessen. Yeah, and, and that's a cap table management tool. And so we're starting to see this framework happen Let's keep looking at it. I don't know. It's, it's again, Danny, to your point, like there is a little bit of fatigue with this exact aim. I hope it happens. I just have a lot of like bearishness on the industry itself is ready for it. Carta has faced lawsuits for its inability to do it internally. So let's see if like externally everyone's able to talk about it. I, I think the theme here is, you know, if there's a gold mine, you don't, you know, sh- search for gold. You're supposed to like sell axes and picks. And I think the Andreessen strategy is to like manufacture axes and picks. <laughs> to the retailers who are selling it to the gold miners. So we're sort of at the third layer of, of, of stuff. But look, talking about infrastructure that, that helps workers do their jobs, uh, we also covered a YC-backed company called, is it Hiru? I think it's Hiru. Hiru, which is a, a Latin American and specifically Mexico-focused startup that, Alex, you wrote a little bit about this week. 
Yeah, yeah. I've been trying to get back into my my really early stage roots lately and talk to some founders that are just building smaller companies because it's been pretty late stage lately in the news cycle. And I feel like I've fallen behind on talking to people that have like three employees and an idea, and an idea because you can learn so much from them about what they're doing in the market, where the gaps are, and also kind of what the VC market is like. So Harry has put together a uh, $1.7 million round. They were part of YC summer 2019. So a little bit older than some other YC companies we've talked about. Originally, they were going to build like an Oyo type thing. And then they went back to Mexico and they're like, oh, Oyo's already here. So they sat down, took three months, came up with this different idea, talked to their investors, kept most of the capital and built it. And what it is, is an application that provides low cost services to gig workers. So for like five bucks a month, Heru will help you file your monthly taxes, which Mexico now requires as of June. Uh, for another five bucks a month, you can get some very basic accident insurance. This sort of thing is really important to people that are making a living in jobs that have less traditional protections and less traditional economic support. I'll just say we all know Uber drivers who have said, you know, we can't find a bathroom. There's no place to stop. The company has also put together Heru Casas, which are like places where you can charge your phone, use the facilities. They're also using that as a way to generate more interest in the space. So I, I'm pretty bullish on this. Its founders were both ex-Uber, which is how they got from, I think it was okay. Columbia to Mexico City, but they know how to roll something out across a country. They know how to get drivers to show up. So my question is like, is anyone doing this in the US? I, I couldn't think of a company, but... You know, a company I wrote about earlier, Dumpling, it was trying to like give gig workers the ability to do it themselves, like to do all their all their like infrastructure themselves. And that had its own connotations with it because at least in the States, gig workers often majority of gig workers don't do it full time. And so that was actually my question for you in Latin America. If we know like if their core base are people who are full time or if they're also a mix of part time, because I think that could change how much better Heru could work in Latin America than in the States. Yeah. So the, the what I can tell you about that is they said there's, I forget, so there's three or four million kind of gig workers in Mexico, okay. but they're also trying to target the freelance market, the people that don't have traditional full-time jobs. So not just, you know, your Uber Eats drivers and so forth, but a lot of folks that do other types of work who also might want similar insurance and, and tax help prep. So their market is north of 100 million people, they think, in the entire country. I think they're niching down to the gig worker segment because they know it best, if that makes sense. But again, like this is a time when tech is actually really cool because you can use tech to help these people better file their taxes, be more on top of their finances. And it's cheap because software is marginally inexpensive to distribute. And like, I just like seeing people given more abilities for a low price point to help working people do better. Like That always resonates with me because working people don't usually get support. And so it's great to see tech applied that really need it. And also, you know, taxes suck. So... It's just, it's just, it's great to see. So I was hyped about that. Can I talk about one last YC company really quick before we move on? Let's do it. Okay. Another one this week, Build Buddy, 3.15 million. I have to explain what this does really quickly. So Natasha, when's the last time you wrote code? I don't think until an undergrad. So two years ago. <laughs> uh, for me, it's been a little bit longer. I really haven't written code since high school. So I'm a little bit out of the, out of the world. But if you're at Google and you write code, there's an internal tool called Blaze. And you write some code, you run Blaze, and what Blaze does is it kind of like compiles any language for you and helps you find where the problems are and so forth. Google open sourced a chunk of this and it became called Basil, which is an anagram for Blaze. What it didn't do was put the whole Blaze system outside the company. So a lot of pieces are missing. So what BuildBuddy is doing is building the bits that are missing around Basil so other companies can have a Google-like development environment. 
founded by a couple of ex-Google engineers. Super cool, relatively nascent on the financing side, but I'm really excited about it. I, I think the part that was really interesting here, so it raised uh, $3.15 million altogether, but it actually had a really long history of fundraising because it actually fundraised through, through COVID. And we usually don't get these levels of detail. So Alex, you, you talked to the founders. How, how did their fundraise go? They were part of the, I think it was the winter 20 batch. So they finished in as part of that YC uh, cycle that had to like have their demo day move. It was all of a sudden virtual. And so really kind of that, that upset moment in the YC cycle, the co-founder Siggy was telling me like, you know, the first day he went out to fundraise was a day the stock market dropped like 10%. Wow. One of those chaotic early COVID days when the world was falling apart, startup layoffs were really the thing that was being talked about. And it was terrifying. But then they raised their first $100,000 check, and then they raised another $300,000, and then they kind of filled out the $1.5 million they were shooting for until one of their early investors said, hey, look, we want to put $2 million in more. And they were like, well, you know, we don't really need that much capital. There's still like four people right now, so they don't actually have a lot of burn. Anyways, they talked that investor down to 1.5 at a higher cap, put together the larger round. Now they're super well capitalized for their size. And this round closed in summer. So it is a, it is a aged seed round. And okay. a lot of times when you hear about a seed round, it didn't close last week. It maybe not didn't even close this quarter. Seed rounds are the laggiest venture capital events you'll ever find. So not a surprise to see this one come out now, but I just think it's a cool company. I'll plug our column too that's coming out tomorrow or this weekend. The equity crew is going to write about the future of the funding round because I am so tired of my DMs being filled with investors being like, actually, that was closed five months ago. And I'm like, actually, I did know that, but this is all I get. <laughs> so that is co coming soon. Hopefully everyone listens or reads it. <laughs> hey, look, if you're going to tell me that I'm dumb, do it on public Twitter. Don't give me this, this, this DM slide crap. You tell, you tell me, you stab me in the chest. Yes. Or don't come, come in yeah, hot or, or don't, don't come just in. Leave me alone. Like, so you presume that I'm an idiot when you do that. <laughs> All right. Listen, we're going to pivot away from the early stage. We're going to go into one of the most interesting late stage rounds, really from a while. I read this before it went out. I read it after it went out. I am hype about scale AI, Danny. So why is this company worth three and a half billion dollars? Because it's an enormous number. And I didn't know the company before recently. Yeah, so we're, we're entering the AI section. I mean, we had a lot of AI news this week. We're going to hit on three of those. But the, the big funding round this week was Scale AI. So Scale is in the data labeling space. So in AI, you need high-quality data. The data has to be labeled, has to be labeled correctly, or the AI is not trained properly. And, and data labeling is, is, frankly, a pain in the butt. So think, like, every time you do one of those CAPTCHAs to log into Google, that is a data labeling exercise that Google has actually forced all of us to do to just log into our accounts. Scale is doing this for enterprise AI solutions. They sell to big companies that have data sets. Think like a, an autonomous vehicle company or even some of the large auto manufacturers. It's a huge space. They're making a lot of money and they raise a huge round. So they raised 155 million bucks from Tiger Global, putting its valuation at 3.5 billion. And we learned that the company has about 100 employees right now. So think about that for a second. That's $35 million an employee in terms of capitalization. And they also have 30,000 contractors on the data labeling product. And so across the board, I, I, you know, this, is, this has come out in, what, a couple of years? It's not that old of a company, if I recall. So this is a, a massive unicorn going around super fast. And, and one of the fewer cases, I think, of, of an AI company that like, has a very meaningful product, focused on a really trenchant solution, is, is making money. Actually, Danny, I wanted to ask you more about that last point in that AI is just so expensive that I struggle to get excited for it sometimes. So how, do we, how much do we know about Scale's presumed healthy business? Well, we learned this week that the company says that it is cash flow break even or cash flow positive. So at this point, it is growing its employee base and it's sort of a cost structure 
in line with its revenues. So while it raised 155 million, you'll notice that 155 divided by 3.5 billion is actually an astonishingly small amount, right? This Very is not little. one of these massive 20% growth rounds. Sure. I'm doing the math top of the head. It's really small. We've talked about this in the past of, of some of these growth rounds that are only like, you know, single digit, small single digit percentage ownership. Presumably Tiger will try to get more ownership over time. But as we saw uh, with some of the IPOs last week, you know, even three, four percent ownership of a large company that goes to IPO can be a very, very meaningful return. And just to make you everyone listening a little bit more annoyed at how good this company looks like on paper, uh, in 2019, TC noted the scale AI had raised $100 million and its CEO was 22, which I believe would make him 23 or 24 right now. So he's rich <laughs> and you're not. How do you feel now? Not great. Thanks. Welcome to Equity, where you come to feel in, in, inferior. This you know show what? You know what? If kills you me have, sometimes. If you have Forbes 30 under 30, which I, I, I apologize, I've now mentioned the show and I promise not to mention the show. God but if you're it. Forbes 30 under 30, imagine like the Forbes, you own 30 billion under 30 kind of category. That's my new, that's the new super exclusive VIP room in the back of the Forbes 30 under 30 party. But um, I want to talk about a less positive story than, than Scale AI. So ServiceNow acquired Element AI, which is a very notable and high-flying Canadian AI startup founded in Toronto by a, a luminary group of folks, I believe out of UT, out of, of Waterloo and a bunch of other universities there. Toronto has really become like an AI hub in the world. They've managed to aggregate a lot of the smart folks. And Element AI was sort of the big company in the space that was coming through, had raised a lot of venture capital money, last value at about six hundred, seven hundred million, and then we learned this week that ServiceNow was actually going to acquire them for sources say five hundred million dollars. So not a not a failure, not in the sense of like you know nothing came out of the the product, but obviously a, a huge drop from their previous valuation last year. And for such a high flying and kind of notable company, the fact that it really sounds like a talent acquisition for no offense to the nice people at ServiceNow, but like. Not the world's most interesting company in the world, even in the enterprise space. I don't know what they're going to do with deep learning talent of, of the caliber here for ServiceNow, but it was sort of an odd story and it sounded like kind of a, a soft landing for the team there. So the one thing I want to bring up about this, I don't know much about Element itself, but I have been keeping tabs on the C3.ai IPO. And C3.ai, if you recall the billboards on the 101 in the Bay Area, was like enterprise AI. And I was always like, who the hell, what, what is that? And their billboards were like these black billboards with like white font is all it said. Anyway, I remember these. So shout out to their marketing team for making that stick in my brain. Um, but when the, uh, the S1 came out, I was really excited about it because I was so curious about its growth. And the company has a history of growth. And then recently it hasn't grown very much. And so I wonder if a couple of these enterprise AI startups are hitting kind of similar ceilings. Now, Element AI, obviously a lower ceiling than, than C3. But I, I wonder if the market is less mature than perhaps they expected. And so it's a little harder to grow into it than they anticipated. I think that's exactly right. One, th one thing I'll add, too, is that in some ways, it would have been great to see a win in this category because Element AI was so focused and loud about being focused on ethics. And so oh, yeah. um, I think if the win happened, it would have said a lot more about where we're at as an industry about um, algorithms and facial recognition and and those kind of applications. And speaking of algorithms, we have uh, as a group voted and we have a lot of Danny 30 seconds to talk about AI and proteins because it is apparently cogent to the conversation. Danny. Um, I'm going to take a lot more than 30 seconds, but no. I, know, I know what you're signaling me. So, so this was actually, look, throw away everything we just talked about with startups and exits and valuations. This has to be one of the most fundamentally interesting news stories of like the decade. I mean, we're only in 2020. I have a feeling that this invention I'll talk about in a second 
is probably going to be up there in, in terms of like the COVID vaccine, in terms of like major scientific breakthroughs of, of this decade. And so the big news is that AlphaFold, which is a part of the, the Google DeepMind project, basically hit the benchmark for being able to predict how proteins are going to fold in 3D space. So to give you a little bit of context here, protein folding is actually a really, really complicated problem. Proteins are made up of amino acids, which are made up of RNA. Years ago, uh, you know, decades ago, we figured out that, you know, RNA leads to certain amino acids. We actually have a formula for this. You can download the table, probably learn it on Sketchy with some sort of weird dinner party where uracil is, you know, shows up as an invitation. But we figured that out. But what we don't know is how you take the strand of amino acids and how they fold into space. And for years, there's been this program called CASP, uh, C-A-S-P, that has basically been like the DARPA grand challenge. It's not DARPA, but it's basically the grand challenge in the space every two years to say, how can we predict this? accurately. And what they do is they actually take proteins that have been determined in the lab that no one has actually seen because they haven't been published yet. And they basically put these algorithms, they predict what we've seen in the lab and, and show like what you expect to see, and then we'll compare it to the lab result. And that's sort of the, the experiment. Over the last two decades, you know, those numbers have averaged about 30%. You know, the, the algorithms and the machine learning programs don't really match the laboratory results that we're seeing. But in the last two years, AlphaFold has just jumped in accuracy. So in, in 2018, they were at about 58%. And then this last year, they nearly hit 90%, which is considered the benchmark for predictability, which means that this massive problem in biology that is the core to life, that's the core of all of our systems, you know, proteins run basically our entire bodies. We now have the ability to predict how those proteins are going to work in our body in a way that we did not before. So I'll, I'll give this quote from one of the scientists as part of the project who said, basically, this will change medicine, it will change research, it will change bioengineering, it will change everything, which was quoted in Nature, the top science journal. And so to me, like, this is a huge deal. It's one of those things that it's not a startup today. It's a research lab. Obviously, AlphaFold is sort of this, like, you know, basic science research lab over at Google, but expect a lot of startups to come out of this over the next 10 years. You know, this is sort of up there with, like, CRISPR in terms of technologies that are really going to fundamentally shift a lot of fields going forward. Yeah, I was going to ask Danny, bring this back to our little world of startups. Is this going to be essentially used by all the biotech startups that we see over the next, you know, five, 10 years? Because it seems like if you could save this much time by running computer simulations as opposed to lab tests, it's going to speed up research, allow companies to get to market much more quickly, or at least get through trials more quickly with, uh, with their products. I think there's two signs here. One is you know, actually using this specific technology, which I think you're going to see in a variety of, uh, of fields, right? So being able to do you know, the so-called computational mouse, being able to run an experiment in simulation versus actually in a lab could massively speed up medicine, it could, uh, pharma, a variety of different modeling. But the other side of this is just to show the power of AI in biology today, which is you know, we have these massive open problems like protein folding that we've been trying to solve for literally decades, have not made a lot of progress. We're now making progress. We're actually making it happen really fast. So it may, it may be built on top of this, but it's also how many other problems are going to be solved in the coming years using similar technologies, deep learning, huge high performance computing capacity to solve biology problems. Now, we have to put a cap on that, even though uh, it actually is very interesting, which is why we wanted to make sure that Danny had a chance to bring it up on the show, because that's going to help color a lot of our coverage for the next while, because biotech really does matter, even if we ignore it fastidiously on equity, something that we should probably not do. Briefly now to wrap up, because we're a little bit long on time, there's been a lot of M&A in the last couple of weeks. And so what we've done is we've compiled a small list of deals. We're going to just briefly give you a, a, a kind of a soundbite about each one to let you know what's going on in the broader M&A market because it matters for uh, the younger companies we often talk about. So first up for me, Lightspeed has bought Upserve. And the reason why I want to talk about this one is because Upserve is kind of like a Rhode Island company. There's not that many 
tech shops in and around here. I know the founder, Angus, and uh, the deal was for $430 million. Back in 2009, when it was founded, it was actually called Swipely. So if you remember that, it's now Upserve. It does about $40 million in revenue. So I'm excited about this one. Just under an 11x multiple, Danny. And if you could please tell us about customer, I'd be very thankful. Yeah, so customer also in the customer success space, similar to the, the company we talked about earlier, was bought by Facebook this year for $1 billion. The company had raised $174 million with big investors, including Co2, Tiger Global, Battery, Redpoint, Boldstar here in New York. You know, the social network, Facebook is really making a, a play for business pages, right? So if you're a restaurant, if you're a, a local business or, or a big business, you might interact with customers through Facebook pages with Facebook Messenger and customers designed to sort of integrate with that to make that as good of an experience as possible. Um, founded by Brad Birnbaum and uh, Jeremy Serial, who are serial entrepreneurs, and I think this is their first major win, a unicorn exit there. Next up, we have Vista Equity Partners, everyone's famous local neighborhood private equity shop, buying Gainsight for $1.1 billion. If you don't know Gainsight, it is a software company in the customer success market. Its CEO and founder, Nick Mehta, is the most energetic human in the software business. He's actually just kind of a lovely guy, which is why I think Gainsight has a bigger profile than it otherwise would. A bit like how Aaron Levy was very well known and helped make Box better known. Was. Because it was that was obnoxious. <laughs> Remember when he ended Aaron Levy, this is a true story, ended up at TechCrunch Disrupt on the drone panel, which is <laughs> still I how think did the, that happened. Oh, you ask. He he talked about cloud storage for data from drones. What a boss. How the f- Frick, did he get on that panel? I am still in awe. <laughs> He's that good. Um, he is that good. Anyways, uh, Nick's, Nick's a nice guy. Uh, the Gainside deal was a little bit of a head scratcher for one reason, which was it was doing about 100 million revenue this year, 1.1 billion. Why is it only selling for 11X to Vista? I don't know. I have questions about what that could mean. Uh, I don't think we're going to find out for a while, but Vista has a history of grabbing companies and then later letting them go out. So eventually we should get an S1. Uh, the sooner the better, I think. And with that, we're going to talk about something that's way more fun, namely Roblox. Yeah, so Roblox, which filed to go public maybe two weeks ago, has acquired the assets, not the entire company, but the assets of an edtech startup, Embellus. The interesting thing here is Embellus is kind of like an SAT replacement. It does cognitive tests. And Roblox basically acquired it to like beef up its recruitment practices, which I think is a flex to acquire assets just to recruit smarter people. The price is undisclosed, but imagine that Embellus is going to be this new team within Roblox while the standalone company itself, which was founded by or is founded by Rebecca Cantor, is dissolving as we know it. And finally, we have some talks for M&A from the podcast space to end up the show, which is a podcast show and it's worth way less than what we're talking about. Natasha, tell us more. Yeah, so Amazon is in talks to buy perhaps like the only other podcast company that's out there and up for grabs now. So that ends that. They're in talks to buy Wondery for $300 million. We're seeing that magic number. Um, Wondery itself is on track to increase its revenue to more than $40 million this year. And we see them making most of that revenue from advertising, licensing to TV, um, and other subscription services like Audible, Stitcher, et cetera. But yeah, la- last large independent podcaster on the market, crazy enough. And I-, I didn't even know that Amazon was in the podcast space. Maybe I'm just completely ignorant. You know, I knew about Audible, obviously, and other audio products. And I guess you have Prime. I guess I guess we can do podcasts as well. But there's literally nothing that Amazon won't do. I think Amazon Prime will eventually just take over our entire lives, is my entire read of this. But Get another podcast exit for that $300 million point, which I think means that venture capital investment into podcast tech is done, as is this episode of Equity. We're way over time. We love you. Goodbye.